August, Text Talks is celebrating Women's Month with our good friends, Tom's, the only music store. Tom's have generously given us the M Audio Vocal Studio Pro Kit to give away in the month of August. I'm actually using it to record this right now. The kit includes studio quality headphones and a condenser microphone that all plugs into their signature USB audio interface. Perfect for getting studio quality audio right at home. We want you, the listener, to nominate an exceptional lady that you think would benefit the most from this opportunity. Simply head over to our pinned post on social channels and tag the woman who you think deserves this gift. And make sure you follow Text Talks for all our exciting Women's Month episodes. That's text with a double X. Also, if you're thinking about picking up an instrument for the first time or you're looking to upgrade, just head on over to any one of the several Tom stores around the country where their epic staff are ready and waiting to say, how's it? Hello and welcome to Tex Talks. I am Tex and today I am talking to an award-winning, chart-topping singer-songwriter who commands the stage and your attention like few solo acts can and do. This Brighton-born musician is a master storyteller seeking out the charming in the seemingly mundane and spinning songs that remind us of the importance of human interaction in an all-too-out-of-touch technological world. With his intimate folk-inflected sound, this one-man band has built a loyal following from basking on streets to soundtracking Super Bowl commercials to opening for Ed Sheeran on a record-breaking South African tour. I am, of course, talking about Michael David Rosenberg, better known to all of us as Passenger. Mike, welcome and thank you for joining me. I think that's the nicest anyone's ever been to me. Thanks. That was, that was an intro and a half. Thank you very much. That was what I was going for. So I'm super happy that, that I've got an A plus in your book. Wow. I've, I've, I'm <laughs> blushing. <laughs> but how's lockdown been treating you? Where are you? I'm assuming that you've, you've been holed up in the, in the UK, right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, lockdown has been uh, a mixture of things. I, I, th- I feel like that's been the case for most people. I, I, for me, I'm super lucky. I've, I've got a house just outside of Brighton uh, in the countryside. So I can, you know, I've, I've been able to go on walks and, I've had that kind of space that I think, yeah, is it, I, I just have, have felt so lucky to have that. Um, but yeah, it's been tough. I, I, uh, I'm a single man, a single guy. So uh, that's pretty been interesting throughout lo- lockdown, <laughs> just being with myself and my cats. Uh, yeah, but I don't know, not all bad. You know, it's, I think it's been, um, for me, like I, I, I've basically been touring non-stop touring and traveling non-stop for the last decade and this is just kind of pressed a stop button that i don't think i have built in internally so i i think that's been a if there is a plus side that's been been the one thing yeah apart from your very soothing uh isolation live streams which i've watched a few how else Mm. have you been keeping busy during lockdown because i know as somebody who travels a lot for work like you said, it's very, very difficult when you can't go anywhere to press pause on that and to unwind. So what have you been doing yeah. to to unplug? I uh, I rescued 25 battery chickens and built them a 
a chicken coop and um, get this. The, their house is called Cluckingham Palace. <laughs> Don't worry incredible. about it. incredible. It really is incredible. And they're the happiest chickens because they've been, you know, living in some horrible environment. And then suddenly they're in this little field in, in Sussex in the sunshine. So that's been really cool. And uh, we set up a veggie patch and, you know, all of the sort of classic lockdown manoeuvres, like suddenly it's homegrown veggies and chickens. Uh, but yeah, it's been cool. And there's even talk of getting some alpacas as well. So um, it's all, I don't know, I've, I, as I said, I've got this this lovely house with not a huge amount of land, but enough to do that kind of stuff. And yeah, it's, I guess this it's just given me the time to to focus on that stuff, really. I mean, I rescued four foster cats and I thought, oh my God. That, but I thought that I was doing the most, but I'm, I'm not rescuing 24 chickens. Yeah. <laughs> but chickens, like you pop them up in a field and you give them a load of corn and then they're cool. Like four cats, you rescued four. Yes. Kittens. At one time. Yes. At one time. And they were six. And are they all, old. oh my God. They're all gone now. They all got adopted. So we were just, we were the interim. <clears throat> we were the. Fine, my husband and I, fine. Yes. okay, got we you. We were the, the foster parents before they got adopted, um, but it was quite hectic. Is that we heartbreaking to... when you have to give them away? Mm, <laughs> yes and <laughs> Not no. Not at all, have <laughs> them, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, think, I think my housemate was way more torn up about it than I was. Really? Yeah, yeah. I was, you know, you know I, think, I think like if you're fostering, you go into it with that fostering mentality of like, yeah, you've got you're gonna have them for six to eight weeks, and then they're gonna go to a loving home. And the 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 way that it it transpired was actually pretty cool because the family that adopted them came to pick them up from us, and we met them, and their their cat had just cool. died, so it was a it was a good transition period. Nice, nice, yeah. I um, I have two cats, and that yeah, I've, I adore them. I'm so soppy with them, man, and uh, honestly. I'm so thankful that they've been about over lockdown. Otherwise, I think I would have gone properly insane. Like, I'm I'm on the edge as it is, but like, they have definitely kind of kept me on the right side of it. Sure. So I'm not sure if you remember because I I know that you do, you know, tons of press and interviews and all of these things. But when you first came to South Africa in 2015, I think I maybe mm-hmm. got like 15 minutes with you interviewing you backstage just after or before your sound check at Kirsten Bosch. Kirsten and Bosch, I, yeah. And I was actually late. Sorry about that. So it ended up being like 10 minutes. Um, That's fine. But I remember you told me during the interview how influenced you were by the music that Paul Simon wrote when he came to South Africa. Um, yeah. And now that you've toured South Africa three times, what are some of the things that stand out to you about South Africa's music scene? Oh, good question. Yeah, I mean, uh, Paul Simon's my favourite artist of all time, no doubt. And and I think Graceland is is up there with the best of what he's ever done. So, so yeah, it's it's a special, um, sp- special record for sure. I, yeah, I mean, I've been to South Africa, yeah, three times. I feel like it's always so fleeting. Like, I, I, I come and it's like, you know, for the Sheeran shows, it was just mad. It was like those four stadium shows in like five days. Um, and even for mine, you know, like I, you know, recently just came in for, I think I was there for four days. So it's so difficult to actually kind of get a feel for the place. Um, but I mean, yeah, I mean, I've, I've met a few musicians when I've been there. 
uh, and it seems like a really vibrant and fairly unique setup and and unique palette, I'd say, musically and and people and culture wise. I think it's a pretty um, a pretty exciting scene from from what I can understand of it. Yeah, I think one of the things that I notice about a South African audience is they don't just know a let her go or mm. a hearts on fire. They know every track from track one yeah. to track 10 on your album. Um, and I think that that's quite a beautiful thing because it means that they're really engaging and they're really listening. What's your experience been like of, of your S- South African audience? I mean, just from the first gig back in 2015, I could, I mm. mean, my view of it is like they're really devoted yeah, I mean, you know, always when you go to a new country, you never know what to expect. Like, and going to, to South Africa, and I remember when we were kind of planning those gigs, and they were like, "Yeah, yeah, they're sort of like five thousand capacity," and I was like, I, "I don't think we should do things that big. I don't like. I've never been to this place before." Like, and and we got there, and everything sold out, and it was it was amazing. And and as you say, the response was incredible. I think actually it hit me even more when I when I opened up for Ed because. I've opened for Ed all over the world. I've been really lucky. It's been it's been such a massive part of of my success is the fact that Ed's been, you know, so kind to me over the years and had me as his opening act everywhere. But South Africa was really, and I'm not just saying this, it was it was really special and unique. I mean, like those shows in Johannesburg were like sixty five thousand people a night. Like I've they're the biggest shows I've ever played in my life. And people listen. Like I have goosebumps thinking about those shows. Like and the Cape Town ones were incredible as well. The, the only reason I mentioned the Joburg ones was because they were so much bigger. Mm. But I was blown away by by the response. Like as a support act, you don't often get that. You know, in some countries, like they're so excited to see Ed. that even though they're like kind of watching, but they're also drinking beer and having a chat with their mates. And that's totally understandable. Like, you know, we're all guilty of that. We're all guilty of chatting over opening acts. But... Man, those those four shows where it was like, yeah, such massive crowds and 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 such a level of engagement was incredible. And then to be able to come back and play, you know, um, what was it, ten ten thousand people in Joburg and and five in Cape Town, like the ratio of people that came back from those gigs to see my headline show was just insane. Like that's, I don't think we've ever had anything like that. So I think that kind of answers the question about. South African audience, I, I think there's a an amazing passion, and not just that. Like they saw it through. It wasn't just like, oh, cool, you're friends with Ed, and you're opening up for him. I like you for this. It was like, no, when you come back, we're all coming back to see you, and and that was a really special feeling. Yeah. So you mentioned Ed and how kind to you he's been over the years, um, and how the two of you have been mates, and not a lot of people know that you guys go back like men like. A few years. Um, yeah. Did you both meet on the scene as like up and coming musos who were like watching and supporting each other's careers as you went? Yeah, exactly. I uh, I was busking. It was my first year of busking, so I think I was twenty four. Um, and I know you're thinking, surely you're only twenty five now. Looking at me, one hundred percent. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so I was twenty four. So that was like twelve years ago. And he was, he was something hilarious, like 17. 
Because I remember he couldn't get a beer at the pub we were playing at. I do. Like he had to drink like soft drinks. That's how young he was. <laughs> um, but we played in front of like 30 people in this tiny pub in Cambridge. And I, I remember walking in because it was like this basement pub and I walked down and he'd started his set and you could hear a pin drop. And I just remember watching this like 17 year old kid and just being utterly blown away by him. Like his songwriting, his performance ability, his charisma. Like you just don't see that in many people, let alone 17 year olds. So I played after him and I think he, he felt similarly to, to, to me, he enjoyed my set as well. And we got chatting after that and we ended up doing a load of gigs together around the UK. Um, and then I, I ended up going to Australia for like six months, G'day, mate. busking and doing whatever else. And I came home and he'd gone absolutely tonto. Like it had just gone massive for him. Tonto. Um, Tonto. Sorry, I'd never, you guys I, say that? I've never heard that expression before. Tonto. Like, yeah, I don't know. I, don't ask me to, what it actually means, but great, like it blow, went crazy Blown up. Him. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Tonto. Tonto. Yeah. I like that. Uh, um, you, you, can, you can start that off in South Africa and trust <laughs> Tonto with you. That's, that's a heavy weight. When this, uh, when this podcast explodes, that's, that's what all the cool kids are going to be using. It just yeah, it went, yeah. it went Tonto. <laughs> it went Tonto. Oh, shame. um um, yeah so it was kind of since then and and then as i said he he sort of um yeah he let me come on the road uh with him and i think we're 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 quite different in a lot of ways me and it but we're we're similar in the way that we approach music we both work really hard and we both hustle and i think he saw the way that i was working not not just going out and playing my songs and coming off like I'd run to the merch stand and I I try and make the most out of all of these gigs and I think Ed really appreciates that you know like we have a very similar work ethic yeah so you mentioned the busking and then you mentioned going to Australia g'day mate I've always wanted one of the things I've always wanted to ask you is why Australia why Sydney why why not go and busk in Edinburgh or <laughs> Dublin yeah why fly halfway well, I- across the world no, it's a really good question. Um, I started busking, as I said, that summer that I met Ed. So it would have been like 2008 or nine or something like that. And I busked all that summer and I didn't have a plan at all. I was just sort of like waking up and looking where like I could go on the train. Um, I didn't drive at the time. I didn't have any money. I didn't know what I was doing. And so I just wake up in the morning and just be like, oh, cool. I'll give York a go. Never been there. Give that a crack. And, you know, you turn up and sometimes the police would, you know, some towns are, are much kinder to buskers than others. So it was a real summer of, of, of learning. Um, but I got to the end of it and it started to get cold. And I was like, I love this and I want to carry on. And I want to, like, I can feel that there's this momentum. Um, where can I go that's going to be warmer weather, that is going to love this kind of music? And, um, yeah, like... Ha- Where's, where's the best place? And, and really, I should have come to South Africa. Uh, but but uh, Australia, I had a few mates out there and, and I, I actually knew a few people who were busking out there already and they were like, yeah, it's, it's, it's great, like, you should come. So I did and I didn't, you know, I thought I'd be there for a few weeks and I ended up being there for nine months or something and I came home. Oh, wow. Yeah, so I, 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 that sort of begun this, this incredible three or four years where I would busk the Northern Hemisphere 
in the summer and then I'd go to the southern hemisphere for the summer as well so I literally didn't see a winter for like four years it was it was just an endless summer it was spectacular yeah it was looking back on it it was such a fun time yeah so playing four to five to six hours a day I think that busking is a great way to improve and sharpen your craft as a musician massively massively. The, the music aside what did you learn on the streets if you will because it's not exactly like smooth sailing it's a hard hustle am I right so right yeah I'd say every day that you busk you come into some sort of confrontational situation Oi, who the fuck are you? whether it's with police shopkeepers like other buskers like god knows what i mean so many people don't really want you there like it's really interesting as a busker because the whole gig is trying to change people's minds about you they make an they they see you busking and they make a snap judgment like we all do with everyone that we see um and buskers don't have a good reputation and, and most people think it's just um oh you're going to be singing wonderwall really loud and out of tune <laughs> And I'm going to walk past as quickly and as awkwardly as possible. Um, so I think that was always the way I looked at it. I was like, I've I've got to stand out. I've got to do something. Different. I've got to prove everybody wrong. Um, but yeah, it it taught me. You're you're right. It like musically, there's nothing like it. You get paid to practice, basically. Um, but also, yeah, it teach it teaches you if you can play in the street and and gather a crowd that means you can play any venue in the world you know like those people who are walking past you are going to they've been mcdonald's or like top shop or whatever if you can stop them with acoustic music and get them to like sit around for like 10 minutes and buy a cd any gig from that point is easy it's not easy that's wrong that's a complete lie but but at least you're going into an environment where people actually want to see music that's such a that's such a massive like difference in mentality. So I think that was learning how to engage a disinterested public was was a massive part of why I am now comfortable on stage. So if you can navigate the streets busking, you can navigate any platform, which is basically what you're saying. For sure. I, mm. I feel like, yeah. I mean, they're, they're totally different things. I was about to say busking's harder than, you know, those massive gigs, but it's not. You know, it's terrifying going out on stage with a guitar and nothing else in front of 65,000 people. It's fucking terrifying. Like, there's nothing, I mean, and totally exhilarating. Can I swear on this, by the way? Of course you can. You can say whatever the fuck you want to say. I was going to say, because the cat's out of the bag now. Um, (laughs) All four of them. Um, (laughs) All four of them, yeah, yeah. Um, But, yeah. I think busking is... I speak to a lot of people about busking and a lot of people say, I just, I wouldn't be able to do it. Like it, it would scare me too much or whatever. And it is, it's, it's confronting, you know, and things do go wrong and not every day is a sort of fairy tale when you're busking, but when it goes right, it's such a buzz. You know, I remember I used to work in kitchens before I, you know, I was, I was gigging as much as I could, but I was, my day job was in, was chefing. uh, And it's, you know, it's hard work working in kitchens. For those people who have done it, you'll you'll know. And I was getting paid 
fuck all and being treated terribly. And I went busking for, for a weekend and I made more that weekend than I would have made in a month of chefing. And it was that moment of just being like, this is it. This is this is me. I'm going to do this. Yeah. And was was there ever a moment while you were basking um, in between going backwards and forwards um, between the hemispheres where you thought, you know, like, Mike, what are you doing? Like, maybe I should just go back home and get a day job. Do you know what I mean? We all oh, have no. those, as creatives, we all have those ups and downs, right? We all have those moments of this is, I'm living, you know, my dream and everything is great. And then we have those really low moments of, oh, my God, like, why, <laughs> why did I choose to do this? You know, I, I was doing a Q&A recently with like this local music school here in Brighton. And the first question I got asked was something along those lines. It's like, how, how do you cope with those moments where you just feel like it's a completely hopeless cause and you've been wasting your time for years? I can't remember how he phrased it. I almost burst into tears. Like it was just like, you know, I, I, hadn't, I hadn't thought about those moments for a long time. And I remember when he, when he asked me, I was just, I was just brought back to that mo those moments of like sitting in some horrible hotel after some shit gig or whatever, whatever had broken the camel's back that time. And you're just like, mate, what am I doing? Like all of my mates are sort of like now in good jobs. They've got like steady, like girlfriends, boyfriends, kids, whatever is going on. You know, when I started busking in my early 20s, it was cool. And everyone's like, oh, that's so that's so great. Like you're traveling around and playing your guitar. How cool. And the later it, like the, the older I started to get. And, you know, it was like, it wasn't new anymore. It wasn't that cool. And I'd go back to towns and there'd maybe be seven more people in the audience than there was the same time last year. And there was some really desperate times, man, where I was just like, because I dropped out of school. I haven't got any other qualifications. I don't. There was never a plan B. Like, it, I, I didn't have anything else to fall back on. Did you drop out of school to pursue music? I dropped out of school at 17 because I was, uh, I was just wasting everyone's time. I wasn't focused. I didn't want to be there. I knew I wanted to make music, and I was smoking loads and loads of weed. And I was just like, I'm just not helping anyone. I'm pissing everyone off, and I'm not helping myself by being here. So I just kind of, I can't, you know, like... I can't, I can't remember who I was then really, but I just, I just kind of knew that it was a waste of time. And yes, I did loosely drop out of school to, to be a musician. Um, which as you can imagine, my mum was delighted as her pot smoking 17 year old son told, told her that broke the news. Um, yeah, that was a tough one, but yeah, it's, uh, those mo going back to those, those moments, they're, they're so hard. And as you said, as a creative, I don't think you can avoid them. I don't, I don't care who you are or what you're trying to do. If you're bearing your soul through art <clears throat> and you have a, a, a rough time with it, it's an awful feeling. Yeah. And there's, you know, I've always thought as well, like if you study medicine or you're studying law or whatever, at the end of it, you're pretty much guaranteed that there's going to be that at the end. I think the difference when you're creating something is like, there are no fucking guarantees. Mm. No one is, is promising you anything. And you just 
have to be in it for the right reasons. And I think as soon as I relaxed and let go and was like, look, like whatever happens with, with music, if I can make a living out of it, then that's cool. And I'm just committing myself to that life, whatever that may look like, you know? And as soon as I did that, it started to work. It was weird. I think, you know, it's, it's impossible to talk to you without talking about Let Her Go because it was such a watershed moment for you. Um, but I think that sometimes with such a gigantic hit like that, musicians start to resent a track uh, mm. as a turning point for whatever reason as their careers progress. What, what are your feelings towards that track now? Nothing but gratitude. Like, I, I love it as a song. Like, look, like the way, the way my vocal sounds on it, the video, like there's so much that, of course, I would change if I could, you know, like, I, like we had no money. Like, we, we sort of did it in the way that we could. Had absolutely no idea that it was going to go on to become this gargantuan mega hit, you know. So, but as, as far as the song goes, like, I love it. Like, I think it's a really special song. I don't think it's my best song. I don't think it's the, my favorite song, but I'm so grateful to that song being the doorway to the rest of my music. You know, like so many people come to Passenger through that song um, and hopefully many of them sort of then sort of delve a little deeper into the other records and, and hopefully discover that it's... That the, only, the only negative thing sometimes is that it's like, trying to convince the world that there's more to Passenger than that. Mm -hmm. You know, and I know my fans know that and I know that anybody who has kind of taken a, a bit of time to kind of, yeah, like take a closer look, hopefully realises that it's not just that song. But, you know, from a commercial point of view, you know, like <laughs> I went to my local shop the other day and there's a really sweet guy in there and he, like we always have a chat and he was like, Oh, I listened to your song the other day. I was like, you know, meaning let her go. And he was like, do you, do you think you're ever going to release another one? <laughs> what? I just love, no. I love the idea that this guy's kind of thought that I've written one song in my life, released it in 2012. It became an enormous hit. And ever since then, I've just been what, like floating around on my pool float. Like, like it was just an amazing insight into like, what most people in the world probably think Passenger is because, you know, like not everyone's into like folk music or whatever. And Let Her Go was the only time it burst into that kind of mainstream consciousness. So, so most people only know about that song. So if there is a downside to it, it's just that thing of like, I just want you to know that there's more to this than that. Well, at least you know that here in South Africa, we know Let Her Go, Hearts on Fire, and everything from track one to track 10 on every album that yeah. you've ever released. <laughs> That's because you guys are the best. <laughs> um, but another one of your tracks that is quite beautiful and that I really love is uh, To Be Free, which I only recently found out you wrote about your grandparents who were Jewish yeah. refugees. Um, how do you go about tackling such like delicate and sensitive subject matter because and, and and doing it in such a poignant and beautiful way i was in pieces writing that song pieces like i uh i didn't sometimes when you write songs you start writing it and you don't really know what it is yet 
you know, like you've got a guitar idea and you're sort of mumbling some lyrics and you're not entirely sure. And as you start writing it, it becomes clearer and clearer what the subject matter is. And I, I started to realize what I was writing about. And like, you know, my grab, so my dad, it's my dad's side. His, his parents were, his, his dad was German Jewish and his mum was Polish Jewish and they fled to Switzerland um, just before shit got real in Germany and they lived in a in a in a refugee camp um, and this story and then they got went to America and had my dad and, and you know like that's the very short version of events but this story has been ingrained in me since I was a kid like I've always been aware of this so when you write about this stuff you're writing about you're like you're tapping into such deep reservoirs of feeling and yeah I was just like tears streaming down my face not and I was I was fine to carry on with the with the song and writing and whatever but it was just this kind of subconscious like pain Mm -hmm. that was coming out it was a I've never written a song like that you know if if I write a painful song I'm very aware of it being painful (laughs) that song was like coming from something really um forgotten almost yeah what what's your process is it um you know when you when you sort of sit down to to write material prep material for a new album uh do you i mean are you writing lyrics first and then taking it to people that you're collaborating with and adding the music um how how does it work it's it's usually a guitar idea i'd say um it's one of those classic things in life where if you try, if you, if I sit down and try and write a song, I could sit there for three weeks and nothing would come out. Like if I'm running a bath and then I just grab the guitar and start playing and, and not thinking about it, it happens, you know? So like, um, I mean, am I right in saying that you, you wrote let her go in like 45 minutes? A fantastic example. Yeah. Like I was about to go on stage at this tiny little pub gig in Australia. Um, and so I, I knew I had a finite time <laughs> to write it. And so I started writing it. I was just like, I, and I think that kind of helped because I, I wasn't overthinking it. I was just like, I'm just going to bash this out because, <laughs> because I've got to go Here on stage. Yeah. 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 Brilliant. Just bash this out. Uh, yeah. Um, it's crazy. It's, it's mad. To, but yeah, I, th- I, th- I think it definitely, um, worked in the song's favor that I just you know the thing that people relate to about that song is the simplicity of it like I think that it's poetic hopefully but but really the idea is so simple and everyone feels that everyone has been through something like that everyone relates to it and I was talking to somebody about this the other day about songwriting and I was saying like all you're ever really trying to do is say what everyone is feeling perhaps they can't express it in that way. You know what I mean? And I think that's what Let It Go does so well. It's like everyone everyone t- can tap into that immediately. Mm. Um, but they can't necessarily write that song themselves, you know? So that's when you write that really special song that, that is universal. Have you been writing anything during lockdown? Because, I mean, if there's anything that's connecting us all across the globe at this point in time, it's the fact that we can't go anywhere. Well, 
you know, those yeah. of us that aren't necessarily essential workers. So, I mean, is, is there anything that you've you've been working on um, while you've been in lockdown? Because I because I think that anything that does come out of this situation could potentially be something like like we were just saying that we could all relate to on that kind of level. Well, yeah. So I um I, I wrote a a, t- a ton of stuff uh, during lockdown. Uh, and have actually released uh, a little album called Patchwork, which uh, is just, it's like eight songs. Um, and it's just exclusively the songs that I wrote in that period. Um, and I just kind of felt like it was a really nice thing to do. It's, it's, it documents such an extraordinary time uh, and a very specific time. And I, I feel like that's kind of how I look at albums now. Like I've done... 11 or something and they're less like I, I i don't freak out about them anymore the way i look at them now is just they're just chapters so i felt like it was a really important thing to have a lockdown chapter like i, I want to look back at my discography and remember patchwork as oh my god yeah shit do you remember when we all had to lock down in 2020 before all the hoverboards came out oh my god <laughs> um do you know what i mean so uh, yeah, I love it. It's it, they're really simple little songs. They mean a lot to me, and you can stream it on all your favorite platforms. Which track of Patchwork resonates the the most the the most strongest with you for whatever reason? It's, it's a track called "Sword from the Stone," and it's um, you know you mentioned earlier about you know let go and perhaps something coming out of this period of time. I think. I think if there is one of the songs that that has that same sort of universal appeal, it's Sword from the Stone. It's it's um, yeah. I won't bang on about it too much, but if if people have a spare three to five minutes, they should go and uh, stream that song, and hopefully they will enjoy it. If you don't have a spare three to five minutes, then I don't know what people are doing listening to this podcast. Go and stream that well, song. Exactly. Go and, and also, stream like you've got the busiest life ever. Exactly. Ever like you, you need to take more breaks, like if, from a medical perspective. Yeah, before you like burn out completely. <laughs> like, exactly. uh, but Mike, I just wanted to say thank you very much again for being our first overseas guest on Text Talks. And uh, when all of this is done and we return to some sort of normalcy, the next time you're in South Africa, because I know you're going to come back because you love us so much here. Of course. Uh, of course I will. Please. Can we do this in studio? Um, yeah. With, yes, please. With some coffee or tea or perhaps something stronger. Tequila. Let's just, let's just say it now. Oh, let's now just, we're talking. Let's, let's, let's sign up to some tequila. Okay. I'm, I'm down for that. That sounds fantastic. Fine. How you doing, darling? How you getting on? Any horses running? Worth betting on? How's the weather down there? I hope you're keeping warm. How you feeling, sweetheart? Are you moving on? Are you sleeping okay? Do the nights go on and on? I hope you're eating well. I hope you're staying strong. Cause I'm fine and I'm not. I'm spinning round 
Passenger for joining us in studio. Thank you for joining us for another Text Talks. Be sure to check out texttalks.com for more episodes and don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts and listen to Text Talks on all good streaming platforms. From myself, Tex, our producers, Jonathan Ings and Matt Lewitz, and our assistant researcher and collaborator, Al Clapper, catch you all on the flip side. <laughs>